morning and welcome to Money for Nothing. I'm Brian Curtis. Well, a slew of mergers leads to charges of froth in markets. Volatility drops to multi-year lows. The People's Bank of China announces a cut in reserve requirements for some banks in China. And the Macau Monetary Authority looks set to crack down further on union pay, the use of cards there in Macau. Also, the yield on the 10-year Spanish bond drops below its U.S. counterpart. First time that has happened in four years. All topics we'll get to with our guests. Now, several big mergers were announced overnight. Tyson Foods is buying Hillshire for $63 a share. The bidding started at 37 so really paying up there. Merck is buying drug company Idenix for $24.50 a share. That's quadruple the stock's average price over the past 20 days. Is this a good sign or is it a sign of froth? Again, we'll put it to our guests. And we'll be looking at a simple new formula to see if the U.S. economy is getting back on track. On this program, we like to keep it simple. Pi, in, in macroeconomics, we use pi to represent inflation. So pi minus pi star, star means it's a target uh, number. And you take that distance and you square it, plus u is unemployment minus u star, which is some kind of idea about the long-run uh, rate of unemployment. And you square that, and that's your, that's your objective function. So you guys are good with math, so I know you don't have any trouble. Oh, he's tongue-in-cheek, you say. Yes, me, not him. That was Fed President James Bullard. He is trying to keep it real. Actually, he says that his formula indicates that the U.S. is not that far from normality. I think the main message of this is that, you know, we're so used to, in the last five years, we're so, so used to thinking of how big the recession was, how bad the financial crisis was, Books are coming out, rehashing uh, the financial crisis, and we're thinking in our heads that the economy is in miserable shape. But according to this objective function, it's not really true. You have to have a cold, clear-eyed view of what's really going on uh, in the economy. Guests this morning include Sean Darby, Chief Global Equity Strategist at Jefferies, Mark Matthews at Julius Baer, and Ren Shuli at Barron's. First, a peek at markets in Asia and how they are changing. The Nikkei is up eight points. In Australia, the ASX 200 up seven points. In Seoul, the Kospi is up 10 points. The gains range there from about a tenth of a percent to about half a percent in Seoul. The dollar yen is now trading 102.49, so that's very little change. The euro... It has been sinking against the dollar since Mario Draghi's comments last week and the lowering of interest rates there. The euro is now 1.359 U.S. dollars. Uh, the pound is at 13 Hong Kong dollars and two cents. So let's get to some of the news flow and then we bring in the guests. On Wall Street, stocks were higher as small cap shares rallied. Family dollar was up 13 percent. A filing showed that Carl Icahn, uh, the big uh, investor, has amassed a 9.4 percent stake. And Apple traded at 93.7. That reflects a seven-for-one stock split. S&P 500 up 0.1%, 1951. The Dow up 18 points to a record 16,943. The Russell 2000, which is an index of the smaller cap stocks, up almost 1%, a fourth consecutive day of gains. And emerging markets performed pretty well. The CEO of, of Aberdeen Asset Management, Martin Gilbert, thinks that the beating up of emerging markets has been overdone and capital is coming back. 
And I think I think the beating up was really at a macro level. We never really saw at the company level that uh, things had changed. So it was very much a currency and a growth story, and really uh, a lot of people taking out quite big shorts on it. And and I think they've made a lot of money on it. And now I think we're seeing a lot of that reversing and uh, money going back into emerging markets. So the macro is one thing, but he says actual companies did very well in emerging markets last year. We didn't see any real slowdown in uh, company earnings. In fact, quite the reverse. We saw uh, 2013 being a better year probably for companies than, uh, than the previous years. Mr. Gilbert says it wasn't big institutional investors that were selling down EM stocks. We saw massive outflows, November, December, January, February, especially from uh, wealth managers, private clients. Mm-hmm. Uh, but institutions didn't sell. And in fact, we saw them putting a, uh, putting a small amount of money in. And we're still seeing interest from that area of the uh, business. How still. long till the private money comes back? Well, it's difficult to come back too quickly when they've just taken it out. So, uh, um, But I think it will come back towards the second half of this year. Uh, I think we'll see money coming in. Uh, so that is Martin Gilbert, uh, the chief executive officer of Aberdeen Asset Management. And we have our own guests this morning as well as we do every day, three guests or so. Mark Matthews, head of research for Asia at the bank Julius Baer and Company, joins us online from Singapore. Mark, good morning. Well, it's great to be here. Thank you. Yeah, it's always fun to have you on the program. Uh, what is your stance? You've been listening there to Martin Gilbert talking about emerging markets and capital coming back in. I think that's going to be a theme of the show today, but might as well start off with you. What's your stance on emerging markets? Well, it's such a big asset class that, I, you know, it's sort of saying a uh, property sector in China, for example, <laughs> is bad or good. It's, it's, uh, it's, too, it's too broad. So there. There are uh, pockets of the emerging markets that I think are good and, and pockets that are, are less good. But what I would say broadly is that this whole concept of the fragile five and all this money rushing out of the emerging markets back to the developed markets, that was, that was 2013. That's no longer the case. And um, I do think that we have a positive change in terms of politics and, and um, uh, the way countries are run uh, in a lot of places, uh, but most notably in China and India. So um, it looks a lot better than it did last year. And I remember from the last time you were on, you were fairly positive on China companies. Yeah, I still am. Nothing has changed. If, and if anything, I think the, the news flow uh, about reform in China continues to, to be good. And um, the idea in a nutshell is that although the economy is um, not growing as strongly as it was, say, four or five years ago, um, the new leaders are forcing through uh, changes that will result in uh, better quality of corporate China, and therefore cash flow will rise. And, and I think we're already starting to see the, the signs of that happening. Why is it that, uh, despite the fact that some companies have done pretty well, why is it that investors, they don't like China and Russia, and they really haven't liked China for quite a while now? Well, I guess that, you know, um, in the in the 90s and the last decade and, and then the, uh, in the 90s and 2000 and the last decade, so uh, for, for a long time now, people have had an idea that uh, that uh, growth makes uh, stocks go up. And, of course, emerging markets have more growth than developed markets. But somehow uh, the cat got out of the bag, um, I guess, uh, three, four, five years ago, that, that uh, a rising GDP does not automatically equivalent with um, stocks going up. And, and we've 
you know, we've seen now the skeletons have been coming out of the closets in places like India and China and Russia that there's lots of corruption and bad corporate governance, etc. So um, that, that, I think, uh, it kept people away from them. But now that they're improving, you know, Narendra Modi's in power in India and, uh, and uh, Xi Jinping and Li Keqiang, uh there's actually a quality argument that you can start to make for the emerging markets you couldn't do before. Do you like India more than China or the reverse? I think I like uh, I like them both, but um, but um, I don't know if I... I think I do like China more simply because um, when you talk about valuations, uh, you know, it's, you can't say India's uh, cheap. It's... Uh, it's not. Uh, it never it was a particularly cheap market, but um, but China, you can say, is uh, probably the cheapest market in the world, with the one exception of Russia. Um, but you know, China's now the A-share index on six times price to earnings, and that's half its uh, average of the past two decades. And um, I just have to think that um, you know it's time to to close your eyes and buy some. Uh, when it's on six times P.E. So those low P.E. levels, uh, does that mean that, uh, as the other guest was saying earlier, that the earnings have actually been pretty solid? Uh, It's just that because of the macro overhang, a lot of these uh, stocks have been sold down a lot. Um, I think the macro is part of it, but I think also, um, you know, China will change in in ways that, uh, I have to admit, are not not, uh, perfectly... uh, uh, obvious to foresee and for example the banks are the probably the largest sector in uh, in the a share market as well as the hate share market and um you know it's it's not really clear uh how they will come out of uh, all of these reforms uh, i think you know for example um the, the the authorities have been talking a lot about um having deposit rates go up, but uh, they're not talking so much about letting loan rates go up. So obviously if deposit rates go up and loan rates don't go up, the margins get squeezed. And non-performing loans um, could be somewhat of an issue. It's hard to you know, put numbers on these things. So, so giving a sort of rambling uh, answer to your question, I think, you know, the, the the uncertainty that hangs over the banking index in particular is, is what's kept the index, you know, at 2,000. Do you think that the authorities are now that they've made a change and they are now going to guide the renminbi um, higher after guiding it lower for some period of time? Yeah, renminbi is a really tough one. That I feel less confident on making predictions than the stock market. But, um, you know, I I, I just think uh, that if you look at it in the very long term, the renminbi uh, should appreciate for, for what I call a geopolitical reason, not an economic reason, and, and that is that China wants to be a superpower. It wants to be a superpower in Asia, and frankly, it has every right to be that. Um, and if you look back in history, superpowers, uh, going back to Roman times, have always had to have two essential ingredients. And the first is a big navy, and the second is a reserve currency. And so you don't get a reserve currency by, uh, you know, having massive fluctuations in your currency or having it go down. That's not the way you attract, you know, massive institutions like central banks or pension funds into your currency. You let it slowly and steadily appreciate. So I, I think that's the game plan uh, over the longer term. What happens this year um you know, as the U.S. economy is recovering, so the dollar is getting stronger. Uh, same time, you know, Chinese economy is not growing as quickly as it was. 
um, it's, it's less difficult to, to, it's more difficult to foresee. Okay, Mark, thanks very much for coming on the program. You're welcome. That's yeah. Mark S. Matthews. He's head of research for Asia at Bank Julius Baer. Very good morning to you. Thanks for joining us here on the program. Look at business and finance. Just 30 minutes we devote to this uh, for the entire 24-hour day. (laughs) Nice to have you on board. Uh, European stocks up overnight, extending a six-year high uh, for the complex. It's because of optimism that the global economic recovery is on track. The DAX in Germany up above 10,000 for the first time ever. So quite interesting and impressive, the move that we've seen in some of these. The stocks Europe 600 index up about 0.4 percent. I'd like to bring in uh, Ren Suli now from Barron's uh, to the program. Um, Shuli, good morning. Good morning. So we have a lot of things to talk about uh, this morning. Uh, maybe just kind of go through them one by one. Uh, I, I know that um, you know. Speaking of emerging markets, just as a as a nice segue, uh, um, in Brazil the. Iba Vespa, or however you pronounce that, is is up quite substantially. You know, this was the story last year that all these emerging market uh, indices were getting slammed. Uh, but we now see that the main index there in Brazil is up 11.67% in dollar terms and 5.3% uh, in in um, uh, the real terms. Um, so it's quite interesting that money is already flowing back into emerging markets, is it not? Uh, right. Uh, Brian, it's not just about emerging markets. It's actually about Brazil, uh, that market in particular. Um, so basically, the deal is Brazil, just like India, is going to have a general election this year in October. And the uh, incumbent president, uh, President uh, Dilma Rousseff, she was uh, uh she was predicted to win without even any runoff, except that uh, her uh, uh, opinions, uh, opinion polls is showing that she's actually um, going to lose in the first runoff and may not even win the second runoff. That's and, why and we're that seeing... A, <laughs> it's attracted money in because investors don't like um, Ms. Russo. Uh, no, not at all. So Brazil, just like India, is running essentially a stagflation. They don't like to use that word, but that's what it is. And, uh, you, you know, we, we have seen, seen India like uh, going up... 30% by now. So that's pretty much what we could foresee in Brazil if uh, President Rousseff doesn't win. And if you look at the Brazilian index, a lot of it is like, uh, uh, you know, those state-owned companies like uh, Petrobras, Electrobras, they're huge, right? Yeah. And uh, they they are loss-making nice, resourceful assets, um, because of the government policies. So if she goes and uh, somebody who is more market-friendly comes in, you will see the the index going up further. So elections can make a b- very big difference. Uh, as you mentioned, we've seen that uh, with, uh, with the new prime minister in India, Mr. Modi. The... Um uh, problem with China is that you know we don't have elections uh, um, on tap anytime soon, but we do see lots of moves uh, afoot. Uh, the People's Bank of China, for instance, overnight announcing that it would cut reserve requirements for some uh, banking institutions. Uh, is that um, is does that show a, pr- a prudent move, or is that starting to look like panic that they're really worried about growth? Uh, Brian, this is called Beijing put. Bas- essentially, like... Uh, uh, like you the know. Bernanke put or the Yellen put. Yeah, like yeah. Uh, if, you, put. <laughs> if you see any like a weakness, if the, uh, Beijing sees any weakness in, in the economy, they would 
they were tied on to those like uh, uh, mini stimulus uh, measures, for example, cutting uh, reserve requirements on uh, uh, certain banks that uh, deal with agriculture sector, or or like uh, uh, announcing a, a few more infrastructure products. But structurally, like China doesn't have big catalysts like India or Brazil per se. Yeah, but this seems to be fairly big. I mean, it's two thirds of of city commercial banks. It's eighty percent of the non county level rural commercial banks, and ninety percent of the non county level rural cooperative banks. So it will be, you know, in some of these outlying areas, it will be a pretty big thing. Right. So it could uh, help uh, with certain banks like Agriculture Bank of China, right? Like uh, some equity analysts uh, saying uh, that uh, we we can see some near term uh, short rallies for Chinese banks. Except that uh, we are still talking about those big books that have a lot of issues, right? So structurally, uh, I, I think uh, it's still troubled. Yeah, because the average listener to a program like this, uh, given that uh, you know this is not a, a specialty finance channel, the average person would just be asking himself, is China okay? I mean, is there going to be like a big blow up in property or something? Uh, is it okay? It seems like uh, China is doing all right. Uh, I mean, like uh, last week, uh, World Bank and IMF both came out saying that uh, China has the means to reach the 7.5% growth rate, right? Um, But they both urge China to lower the growth target and say, well, focus on the structural reforms instead. So, uh, like, the consensus seems like, uh, yeah, like Beijing does have all the uh, reserve power. <laughs> a lot of levers to pull. Right. Um, right. Okay. Um, we see China property still facing challenges. Um, prices have begun to weaken. Transactions have dropped. Uh, I know you wrote a piece a while back about Li Ka-shing. Uh, now Peter Wu saying that he has uh, some reservations about investing aggressively in China. And he actually cites austerity measures as as part of the reason. Um, is that a major sign or is that just uh, prudence? Mm, I think that's probably prudence. Um, but uh, you you have to ask him. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, it's it's probably for some of these uh, investors, just wait and see, see how things progress, because it is an experiment. They are trying to reform the economy while Acknowledging it will slow down, but hoping it doesn't slow down too aggressively so as to, um, you know, cause huge dislocations. Uh, So a couple of um, other merger deals. I mentioned those in the West. China Mobile buying an 18 percent stake in Thai Telecom True Corp. That's pretty big. It's eight hundred and eighty million dollars. Do you like what you see on the M&A front? Uh, well, we Barons uh, did a, a cover story, I think, uh, two weeks ago, talking about M&As. So, uh, yeah, like uh, there, there seems to be uh, a pretty ongoing uh, stream of deals. And the markets have uh, been reacting pretty, pretty positively, right? Like um, if you can now grow organically, at least you're chasing after growth by acquisitions. Some charges have emerged, though, that uh, companies seem like they're overpaying. Uh, The ones I announced today, those were really uh, quite dramatically high bids compared to, let's say, where the stock traded or what the original bids were. For instance, uh, with uh, that um, move by Tyson uh, to move on uh, Hillshire, $63 a share, bidding started at 37 and Merck paying quadruple what this pharmaceutical company, Idenix, traded for uh, previously. So... um, there are charges that this indicates that there's now froth and that people are overpaying for growth. Uh, 
Certainly in certain sectors, for example, uh, you know, my favorite uh, topic is technology, right? Like there, there are concerns that uh, Facebook have been paying. Uh, but like a certain, uh, like I, I imagine like pharma, I am not an expert in pharmaceuticals, but there are very few good assets. And the Merck has spent billions of dollars <laughs> trying to uh, develop uh, in-house drugs and they, they haven't been successful. Yeah, and this particular company um, has very good hepatitis C products. So one can understand uh, that they would move uh, aggressively. Um, but, you know, you do see it quite a bit um, th- throughout uh, the globe, really, now that there has been a lot of merger and acquisition activity. Would you say that uh, China lags behind, though, in terms of, of um, companies buying other companies? Uh, not in the uh, technology sector. Hmm. Uh, you know, Ten- Tencent investing, JD.com, yeah. right? Like, And Alibaba has not been... Uh, lazing around. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Um, good point. And it's a nice segue into that uh, that area. Um, we've talked in the past about Tencent and Alibaba and I guess Baidu getting, getting involved. We did see a big sell-off in high-flying stocks, and they haven't really come back that aggressively yet. Uh, Tencent has bounced after the share split. Um, but what's happening there? Um, so uh, there, there, there is still some uh, growth stock sell-off, and uh, 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 Institution, some of the the fast money they they are moving into the uh, so-called value sectors. Hmm. Yeah. So um, when you look across the board at um, you know other companies like Kingsoft, it's been it's been hit pretty hard. It's down about fifteen or eighteen percent, I guess, in the last month. Uh, do you think that uh, this is just a phase and that it passes fairly soon? Um, Historical research has shown that uh, a lot of the uh, growth uh, ramp-ups don't get to cover, uh, recover 100%. But there are signs that, uh, uh, you know, in, uh, institutional investors, well, of foreign investors do like China's uh, internet uh, story. So you will see some kind of a recovery. Do you see some small companies that could be good targets of bigger players? That's an interesting question. You mentioned, I think, one of the times previous on, were you the one who mentioned that VIP shop? Yes. That you like that company? Well, it has done so well. It looks like, uh, you know, a VIP shop, I, I have to double check the price, but I think it doubled again this year. And uh, I, So it would be a very expensive company to try to take over. Yeah. It's yeah. already a $10 billion company. Yeah. Well, we have lost our other guest, unfortunately. That's why we're doing a little extra time. Uh, So I did want to talk a little bit about um, the bond market and why we see things like European bonds so low. Tell me if you don't feel comfortable talking about this, but it's it's a real conundrum, really, that you see Spanish 10-year bond yields lower than the U.S. You see all of those bond yields down really low. You see the 10-year itself falling some 40 or 45 basis points from the beginning of the year at a time when every single economist seemed to be predicting that interest rates would go up. Now, this affects a lot of people because we're all, you know, basically paying for money with interest rates. So um, does it cause you to scratch your head, or can you easily explain it or understand it? Uh, I think in Eurozone, they have this uh, deflationary pressure. So, uh, you know, that, that, that uh, uh, like drags down the interest rate, right? Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm, I'm told that we do have Sean Darby now, Chief Global Equity Strategist at Jefferies. So, um, Shuli, you're off the hook. <laughs> Thanks very Thank much, you so much for, for joining me. us. Shuli Ren uh, from Barron's. And Sean, good morning to you. 
sorry about the uh, telephone um, hiccup there. Apologies. Yeah, yeah no problem. Uh, yeah, we're just picking up on that point. Uh, why are bond yields so low? It's a very good question, and there's probably three or four reasons. First of all, um, particularly in the U.S., where the Fed makes forecasts about the peak of um, interest rate uh, cycles, it does appear that it probably be, will be around about uh, 3%. So expectations on rate hikes or the cycle in rate hikes has been coming down over the last uh, six to nine months. Uh, the second is that the carry trade is still very much in evidence, both in the U.S. and in, and, and in Europe. So um, it's still very worthwhile for the banks to borrow in the short end and buy long-term government bonds at risk-free. The spread is still very wide. Is it an indication that, you know, they're taking the money and they're buying bonds with it rather than loaning it out? Well, that's the third thing. The initial dilemma at the moment is that uh, loan growth um, is still relatively subdued in the U.S. You know, the mortgage uh, mortgage growth is actually very, very weak, um, despite five years of uh, fairly unorthodox policy. And only now are we beginning to see some of the corporate loans picking up. But again, corporates can borrow not necessarily from the banks; they can borrow from uh, the, the financial market. So the banks themselves are still finding that there's a lack of demand. I'll just add one last thing, which is that you know, there is still a savings glut out there. People have still been adding to their savings base, and that means, of course, that there's ongoing pressure uh, for banks and institutions to own bonds. Yeah. Um, there's so many um, curious things. Uh, you know, you had um, the DAX over 10,000 and U.S. markets at, at all-time highs. Uh, and, you know, you see um, calls for a correction. I just wonder whether or not we, have we had the correction in that people sold down emerging markets in the second half of last year and early into this year. They sold down the small, comp, small cap and uh, high-flying stocks, uh, biotech and technology a lot. Is that enough or do we need... A correction in the uh, big markets? No, I, I would say that um, the same conundrum that's happened in the bond markets has happened throughout all asset classes, as you pointed out. You've had commodity prices rallying. You've had you know, equity markets doing very well. A lot of the EM markets have also rebounded. Um, I think there's two things to point out. One is that you know, the global economy is still expanding, so there's ongoing um, uh, improvement in the earnings base, even though that perhaps the analysts might be too, too, too optimistic. And the second is that some of these stocks that had been high flyers came down to very attractive levels. We saw some of these high flyers coming off nearly 20 25% from their peak earlier this year. And I think uh, there's been some room for uh, people to go back and look at the valuations of those and feel that they're a lot more, a lot more comfortable. But, you know, it's a very odd – what we've seen in the bond markets has been replicated throughout all the asset classes at the moment. In 20 seconds or so, where would you be directing firepower? Um, well, the cheapest asset class at the moment is volatility. I think naturally that's dropped now to very, very close to sort of all-time decade lows. Uh, so I think that has to be – in an eye has to be kept on that. But ultimately, I'm, I'm still in the view that we're in an economic expansion and probably in the region at the moment, Japan still stands out. There's been more share buybacks in Japan over the announcements over the last two, two quarters than they've had over the last two decades. So I think the money's in for Japan. It's still cheap and 
and uh, there's some corporate governance improvement which they've never really had over the last decade. Okay. All right, Sean, thank you very much. Sean Darby, Chief Global Equity Strategist at Jefferies. Uh, yeah, sorry about that today. A little bit herky-jerky, uh, but that's the way it goes with phones and uh, trying to contact guests. By the way, he mentioned uh, volatility very low. The VIX down below 11. That's the lowest level since February of 2007. Well, the weather today, mainly cloudy with some showers. The maximum temperature, 30 degrees. Uh, showers for the next couple of days. Markets are just sort of in line this morning, just up about a quarter of a percent. Thanks very much for joining. We'll see you tomorrow. The news with Samantha Butler. The man coordinating the search for the missing Malaysian airliner MH370 says it could take more than two years to find the plane. Retired Air Marshal, Air Chief Marshal Angus Houston says it's an even harder task than the search for an Air France jet that crashed into the Atlantic five years ago and was eventually located just 12 kilometres from the last known location. He says there's a lot of number crunching being done to narrow the Indian Ocean search area and 55 million US dollars has been set aside for the search itself. Sometime in the near future, we'll publicly announce a search area of about 60,000 square kilometres, which will be searched by deep water technology, sideways looking sonar, towed sonars, autonomous uh, underwater